0: everyone or good afternoon or good evening depending upon where you are on this rotating globe welcome to another edition on Saturday night March 5th I believe uh, to the other side of midnight my name is Richard C Hogan for the next three hours I'm going to bring you a continuing story which is really unbelievable about uh, a little over two months ago almost now three months Uh, December, January, February, it's the first week in March, we began a series of remarkable experiments transmitting radio signals, ordinary uh, EM radio transmissions, electromagnetic radiation, uh, first on a very large antenna with a very large effective power of something like half a million watts and now with a much smaller handheld device and I'll explain why we're doing that in a minute. And we sent our first test transmissions in the direction of this object that came zipping through the solar system several years ago in October of 2017, an object that NASA named Oumuamua, which kind of generally means a uh, first scout uh, going before, that kind of thing. Anyway. Um, during its quick passage through the solar system it was discovered very early on by tracking the orbit that it was on what's called a hyperbolic trajectory it had uh, never been here before it entered the solar system at excess of what's called escape velocity meaning it was uh, falling faster toward the sun than if it had been uh, you know sitting still and just had uh, kind of wandered into the gravitational influence in the Milky Way, and it made a sharp right-hand turn and departed in the direction of Pegasus at roughly 90 degrees, uh, again in excess of escape velocity from the sun, never to return. So in December of 2021, around December 4th, it was this sliver in the dark about two and a half billion miles away, utterly mysterious, and there was a serious groundswell of discussion in the mainstream astronomical community following our discussion here on the other side of midnight several weeks before that a Muamua was not a natural object. Uh, astronomers tried to fit it into several categories. Uh, first, it was it termed a comet, then, when no cometary uh, signatures like a coma or a tail were detected. It was called an asteroid. And then when uh, anomalous motions were detected, it was shifted back in the mainstream to a cometary object. But actually, there were several mainstream astronomers following our, our lead, which stated very bluntly that it was potentially an interstellar active artificial probe Um, of a class basically uh, devised by a Stanford engineer back in the 1960s named uh, Robert Bracewell. A Bracewell probe in uh, Bracewell's model was an artificial object created by some distant extraterrestrial civilization that instead of sending radio signals into its section of the galaxy would create a whole series a very sophisticated robotic probes, AI probes, run by artificial intelligence, and they would de- pat- dispatch them on trajectories to their nearest star systems, and even if it took them centuries at the uh, sublight speeds, you know, rocket technology, obsolete rockets, they would eventually wind up in this distant solar system, they would go into orbit and they would lie in wait, they would orbit quietly waiting for a potential indication of intelligence in that particular star system. and The idea behind Bracewell's model that a culture would create hundreds of these or maybe even a thousand or more and send them in all directions to hang out in the stars globed, you know, several hundred light years around them, and they would simply wait for the probe to pick up radio signals indicative of a high-technology civilization capable of uh, manipulating the electromagnetic spectrum with all the associated technologies that go into creating radio, certainly radio that can be heard across interstellar distances. And uh, they would then send signals from an orbit around the star back to the planet and the culture that was sending radio, and thereby the model was that uh, there would be a two-way communication established between the indigenous civilization, the artificial probe that had come from a distant solar system, and the probe would then record a whole bunch of these transmissions and then send it back to its home world, its home solar system, hundreds or maybe a thousand or more light years distant. That was the model. So when Oumuamua came zipping through the solar system, there were some people, us us at the uh, kind of forefront, who said because of the characteristics of its trajectory, the fact that if you look in detail at the numbers attached to its swift hyperbolic orbit around the sun, including its diving into the solar system at 32 degrees, all of those numbers had over and over again things like phi, 19.5 etc, etc. So to our mind the geometry of the orbit itself was a hallmark of its artificiality. Uh, For other reasons, totally separate reasons, uh, Abby Loeb at Harvard and several others also got the idea and began to promulgate it that this thing was an artificial probe. Well, the fat was in the fire or the cat among the pigeons or whatever other cliche you might want to drag out of the closet because since this really was the first confirmed interstellar visitor by mainstream astronomy by mainstream science regardless of its origins there was a great deal of interest in Its composition, where it came from, and there have been all kinds of efforts to try to track the trajectory back to figure out where it came from. What's really weird is that when you do that, it turns out that the solar system literally walked up on, if you can think of hundreds of miles per second orbiting around the center of the galaxy as walking, it literally walked up on this object which was sitting almost motionless relative to the surrounding stars, which in and of itself is really kind of weird, almost like someone had put it in our path, like putting a buoy on the course of a giant ocean liner in the middle of the dark Atlantic and waiting for the two objects to to meet. Um, so Oumuamua, passed the test of being interstellar. It certainly passed some of the tests of being artificial. But during the time that it came whipping around the sun, the only public effort that we could track down was an effort by, oddly enough, a Russian oligarch who lives in Northern California and who has a few billion extra dollars to kind of uh, spend on whatever he wants to. And he funded a week of listening time at one of the world's premier radio observatories in greenbank west virginia uh, long about december and the the spec- specifications of the of the program were that if something as small as a cell phone or a smartphone had been broadcasting from a muamua at its distance from earth at that time which was Uh, well beyond the orbit of Mars and approaching the orbit of Jupiter, I mean, it was really moving fast. Um, This radio telescope listening session over about a week, several sessions, would have picked up the signal. Nothing was heard, or so we have been told. What I found kind of curious, if there was serious interest in the artificiality model, is that no one under the rubric of bracewell's original idea which was that such a probe would only respond if it got a message if it got signals if someone actually tried to talk to it no one that i'm aware of either the deep state the military the mainstream international astronomical community amateurs nobody tried to communicate with the muamua as it was zipping past the earth and departing into the far distant dark and i wonder why even now that nobody thought to give it a call so long around last december early uh, late november early december we crafted a enterprise mission effort on the part of ourselves and two very interesting researchers david sarita and Jimmy Blanchett. Jimmy had the antenna, David had the codes, and so we all agreed that what we would do is to craft a few minute long message comprised of sacred geometry, sacred frequencies, uh, fundamental constants, uh, some scanned images like pictograms, kind of like what the Arecibo Observatory sent many years ago under the aegis of Frank Drake and uh, Carl Sagan. And we would beam it using Blanchett's antenna in northern Arizona uh, periodically during uh, the other side of midnight on a Saturday night on February 4th uh, in the direction of Muamua. And we would see what happened if anybody answered the call. Well, obviously, what's happened since has kind of obviated the ancient Kind of archaic Bracewell probe model, because no sooner had Blanchett started transmitting, and remember, given that a was something like two and a half billion miles away, beyond the orbit of Neptune, um, at that time on that night, and receding at uh, you know tens of miles per second, even as we transmitted, uh, David and I and a few others calculated. That it would take almost four hours at the speed of light the speed of normal radio transmissions for our signal to get to a Muamua. and then of course you start the stopwatch running and it takes if they answered instantly which likely they would not um it would take four hours for the information for a return radio signal to get back that was the minimum time actually if you figure in different languages, decoding, figuring out the frequencies, deciding what to say, whether to respond, all of those things could have added even more hours, if not days, to the total round-trip time. Well, things happen very quickly and very dramatically and totally through the sublight or speed-of-light model into the uh, wastebasket. Because about two minutes after Blanchett began sending the signals, over the course of the next several hours, something like six spacecraft, and the reason we know their spacecraft is because of their behavior and their geometry. He was able to zoom in on the low light level television camera he had mounted and was recording uh, images video from during the transmission sequence. Over the next several hours. Six different spacecraft with different geometries popped into and then disappeared out of normal 3D space directly above the antenna, photobombing literally that patch of sky where the antenna was directed, with a muamua two and a half billion miles away beyond it in the dark. Six of them, and they would come on. They'd hang out for a moment, a few frames, and they disappear. They didn't track across the sky, they didn't mimic airplanes, they literally popped into 3D space and then disappeared like they had beamed in and out to another dimension, which one could conventionally call hyperspace. And it all happened in two minutes after he started the transmission. Now, we can interpret this, as we will have some fun doing tonight, in a variety of ways, the most interesting and the least uh, hypothesis-laden idea is that the Earth is kind of surrounded by a whole bunch of extraterrestrial civilizations, and they're a lot closer uh, to us than Muamua. In fact, uh, they're hanging out somewhere between us and the Moon. It takes about one and a quarter light seconds to get a signal to the Moon and back, another one and a quarter seconds. So. In two minutes, they could have been within a sphere uh, two light minutes in radius. The sun is eight light minutes away, give or take, so they could have been like one-eighth of the distance to the sun. And since the sun is 93 million miles away, in other words, they could have been something like 10 million miles out there and went, whoa, who is transmitting tonight with a very powerful signal? Let's go over and take a look that's the really dumb simple stupid model there are much more interesting but more complicated hypotheses to explain uh, what happened that first night on the radios remember we were also listening for return signals on the radio on the two frequencies the two sacred frequencies the two special hyperdimensional frequencies we had chosen to transmit on which was 144.1 megahertz that's million cycles per second and 432 megahertz million cycles per second well what was very curious is that after Blanchett stopped transmitting he switched his antenna system to receive and no time during that experiment or any time during subsequent experiments did he receive radio signals back on the antenna system and the radio receivers attached to it that was used in the transmission. But what he did get and what David Sarita got were reception of transmissions on a handheld radio, which is made by the Chinese. Its brand name is Baofang. It's kind of the handheld portable ham radio choice of a whole bunch of hams all over the planet. It apparently is the best technology. Uh, You can either transmit about eight watts or you can receive. You can do one or the other or you can do both. Uh, You need a license to transmit. Uh, But receiving, obviously, it's like any other radio. You just listen. And what David did was to listen and record those signals, and he'll describe how he does this momentarily. And Blanchett did the same thing, um, and at widely separated points, two points that night on the evening of December 4th on planet Earth, those radios went, were alive, not just with the sound of music, but with the sound of actual, specific, coded radio return signals initiated within minutes of our sending a test transmission to Oumuamua. And obviously because they came in much quicker than the radio time delay between us and Oumuamua, that is one of the reasons why uh, we're all kind of in agreement that whatever we're getting on the radios it's not actually radio transmission it's not electromagnetic radiation something else is triggering the speaker Uh, think of it as a kind of a hyperdimensional uh tractor beam which vibrates the speaker which in turn because speakers are surrounded by magnets generates in the radio an electromagnetic uh, induction so that's why you can actually plug cables into the radio and and feed it into a computer and record this uh, on a computer, but it's not really radio. It's something obviously that is traveling many, many, many times faster than the stagiole speed of light. So, what could it be? And much more important, who are we talking to? Well, over the next several weeks, ending uh, uh, a couple of weeks ago on February 20th for the time being, we have been upping our game, expanding our experimental envelope, and we introduced a whole new factor to the ongoing experiment. Because when we decided on one of those weekends not to send the signals to Oumuamua, but instead, at my suggestion, we sent the same signals to the moon, one of the interesting things that we got back was a coded series of numbers that instantly led us to a very phenomenal and unique place here on planet Earth, i.e. Stonehenge. So then we thought, John Womack and I, and a couple other people thought, well, wait a minute. What if we were to take one of these handheld radios and within the environs of the most ancient known astronomical observatory built on earth and built to track among other things the phases and cycles of the moon which is why i think our moon transmission got stonehenge in the conversation we said to ourselves well what if we were to transmit to our same unknown receivers our audience out there our mysterious people who are obviously listening and will respond if we send them information. What if we use Stonehenge as a kind of a ground plane or a location to do the next phase of the experiment? And so several weeks later, uh, on February 4th, we sent our Intrepid Away team um, agent, our, uh, our explorer uh, extraordinaire, Maria Wheatley, who we will introduce uh, shortly uh, in the morning in the conversation. And we sent her into Stonehenge and it turned out to be during the height of an extraordinary British hurricane in the middle of the winter with winds topping 120 miles an hour in some sections of the island. And I guess it was 80 miles an hour around Stonehenge when she was able to, um, uh, on a very sleety and rainy afternoon, manage to stand there in the center of the monument and send and receive another set of coded signals. Well, we fast forward the film now, and we've done this now twice because we decided that we would try it one more time. Maria did, she is definitely an intrepid explorer. And um, this time because of this bizarre weather, which has persisted, she was unable, they had closed Stonehenge down. So on the afternoon of the 20th, she was unable to get into the monument but fortunately, when Robin and I were in Guatemala measuring uh, uh, the uh, sacred sites there, we discovered, particularly around Chichen Itza, that if you are within a few miles of one of these ancient sacred sites, um, you can uh, pick up information, you can see measurable physical instrumentation respond, you can record the results. Uh, I did this with the Acatron system so it was on that basis on that theory that I said to Maria well if you get within you know a mile or two of the monument and you start recording and you start transmitting um, we should get very interesting data and that is exactly what occurred as you were going to hear so before I bring on our panelists tonight I want to go through a couple of very important things um, if you go to the other side of if you are a uh, new listener, I was on coast to coast the other night, and I presume we have a lot of people from the coast audience who are kind of curious as to what's going on over here at the other side of midnight. Well, if you uh, go to the website, click on, or you, you type in, or you um, you know input the other side of That will take you to our URL, our homepage. Take, click on tonight's banner which says rather um, succinctly what we're doing open hailing frequencies continuing Stonehenge ET transmissions new responses click on that then that will take you to the guest page right under the guest page you will see fast links to items with my name John David Thomas and Maria click on my name that will take you down to the uh, section of the page, Radio with Pictures, where I have a couple of news items at the top. Those are links to the ongoing uh, progress in the unveiling and commissioning of all the instrumentation of the Webb Space Telescope, which is successfully proceeding to its operational phase somewhere in July of this year. Those first two links take you to the NASA site. The first is a blog. Uh, describing the latest uh, commissioning results. The second is where is the telescope? Gives you a kind of a uh, overview of the instruments and the temperatures and physically where it is around the L2 point and all that. Item number three. Now, this is very important because as you're going to hear later on in the morning, one of the things that has happened from these succeeding transmissions, certainly from Maria's first efforts in Stonehenge on the 4th of February, is that we got messages which, when uh, David decoded them, um, gave us a number that, at the you know, except to, except to David, it was a number that kind of hung there in space with no real connective glue. It was 20.6 was the number, and David said immediately, "Oh, that's the royal cubit that he's figured out from separate research over many years." But I you know I'm I'm I, I like multiple evidence, multiple lines of evidence. so I was kind of looking around for something more than that and about two weeks later, we had the second shoe drop because as you may know, we're going to talk about this in some level um, later on in the morning. Um, about two weeks after February 4th the the um, um, event that kind of rocked the world uh, took over, and that was this extraordinary event in the South Pacific called the Tonga explosion. We're not quite sure what it was, but it appears to have been some kind of major event that uh, erupted in an unprecedented fashion, equal to tens of megatons of uh, explosive. Capacity, and it shot a cloud of material up over 34 miles. Well, when we get back into the conversation in the next couple of minutes, I'm going to go through why this is important because now on the transmissions that we recorded from Maria's experiments in Stonehenge on the 20th, David believes we got another heads up for something having to do with Belarus and Ukraine. And the reason that's important is because this was recorded four days before uh, Russia uh, under the aegis of uh, Vladimir Putin invaded Ukraine. So one of the important questions of the morning is, is whoever we're talking to somehow out of time, are they literally able to see the future, relay events in the future, straddle different timelines? Are they able to cross time? Are we talking to hyper-dimensional beings that literally live outside or away from our three-dimensional time? Because now twice, certainly the first time with the Tonga explosion, and now potentially with Ukraine and the beginning of this extraordinarily tragic war. It's looking, it's appearing as if we're getting advanced information beyond time, beyond space, beyond any kind of uh, natural proclivity for this kind of information to be, uh, you know, basically available. So is it in fact something coming to us from some other dimension as part of our ongoing effort to communicate beyond the earth, beyond time, beyond our current reality. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. When we return, we'll try for the rest of this morning to bring you some potential answers to that crucial set of questions. We shall return.
1: approach to it has been, of course, from this academic-scientific side to try to show that from that point of view, that even in the, in the depths of the, of the data that they're presenting, they don't have a case. They've misrepresented things. They've distorted things in the public representations. And, of course, I'm not alone in having come to that conclusion. number one there are an increased number of deaths for 2020 but number two these are not caused by COVID-19 they're caused by the biological and psychological effects of the lockdowns themselves because when Mm -hmm. you lock people down when you wreck an economy you get an increase in heart disease, and cancers. You get an increase in what is called deaths of despair. Uh, You get suicides, you get drug addiction going up and overdoses killing people. And all of these things put together by my estimate in my research paper shows that as many as 600,000 people died in 2020 from just these things, deaths by despair and the effects of the lockdowns and the forced masking. This is Dr. James DeMeo, and I'm speaking to you from the other side of the news. Your program, I must say, compliments you. You're doing a great job in assisting to get around these barriers of censorship and erasure that the mainstream media is doing. Uh, So it's very important, and I congratulate you for the work you're doing. I'm an invited guest on the other side of the news, and I found it to be a very enlightening and helpful and wonderful experience being interviewed by three intelligent people
0: Welcome back, everyone, to this Saturday night, to March 5th of uh, 2022, here on the other side of midnight in the land of enchantment. Uh, What I'd like to do now is I'd like to introduce our panelists for the evening. Uh, We have many important guests, some of whom have uh, been intrepid explorers like Maria. Um, Others are actually working on uh, um, the analysis of, of what we have uh, discovered what we have recorded what we have received and we're in the process of trying to figure out what in fact it all means starting with who are we talking to so without further ado let me introduce uh uh my uh, uh guest for the evening um let me stop this okay i'm doing kind of real-time radio here so uh, pardon me folks okay um our first guest is, of course, Maria Wheatley. Maria is a second-generation dowser who was taught European, taught by European master dowsers, her late father, and Chinese geomanths. She's a leading authority on geodetic earth energies, ley lines, and stone circles. She's also an accomplished author of several books on sacred sites and dowsing, and you can read the entire bio there on the website. Um, John Womack uh, began leaving his body in the fall of 1965, answering psychic distress calls from people and spirits. He uh, cut his Samaritan teeth on cosmic books, comic books rather, and cartoons such as Space Ghost, Superman, Batman, etc., etc. In school, he grew accustomed to being the smartest kid in the class, and of course, the most bullied, excelling in geometry, algebra, Trigonometry, calculus, physics, and chemistry. Um, he is a, a graduate of high school with a double major in math and science, and a minor in English literature. With um, his current background, he is the uh, uh, he's is a, a premier videographer. He does video editing. He does sound profiling, um, spectral uh, analysis, and. Um, he is actually currently the uh, host and executive producer uh, of a show called the OBE Show, the Out of Body Experience um, and it's available on Paraflix, Roku, Amazon, Fire Apple TV, etc etc etc. And again you can see his entire bio there on the other side of midnight on the guest page. David Sarita was born in Edmonton, Alberta. <laughs> Uh, August 21, 1961. Um, He is now uh, a very accomplished expert in sacred geometry, sacred frequencies. He has produced and scored music for meditation, frequencies for tuning consciousness. He and his wife uh, had a meditation practice and consciousness course series on audio and video called Quantum Regenesis. And... uh, I kind of roped him into this because it turns out that an awful lot of the messaging seems to fall within his bailiwick and with his area of professional experience. He also designs and makes harmonic field transmitters and I think we're gonna have him describe what a harmonic field transmitter is. Um, Thomas Mathers, AKA James Tiege, is a Grammy-nominated musician and a fervent futurist with keen interest in space and technology global politics meditation metaphysics sacred frequencies and geometry ancient sculptures and exopolitics over the last 20 years james has traveled to over 50 countries sharing his music and ideas around the world with an honest logical and adventurous passion for the truth He has visited many of the sacred ancient sites on multiple continents and has become a well-informed and proud generalist, bridging concepts, ideas, and theories across many disciplines and areas of research, extending from the physics of reality into what we're all trying to figure out tonight, more of the unknown. And last but not least, my dear friend and colleague Ron Gerbrand, a proudly uncredentialed polymath with a deep interest in the study of archaeology, especially Martian archaeology. Um, throughout, he actually attended both uh, Stanford and Berkeley, University of California, Berkeley, simultaneously before he gave up on academia to constraining and left to travel on many continents overseas. And throughout all that time, he focused his core attention on the metrology of our paleo history, particularly that on other planets, especially uh, looking into the implications of all the ruins that for the last 50 years, uh, NASA has been quietly discovering and not telling us about on Mars. So without further ado, welcome everyone to the other side of midnight.
2: Hi, Richard.
0: Hi, David. <laughs>
2: incredible presentation your lead in was so meticulous such incredibly fine details that I really appreciate well thank
0: you we have a lot of new people who are listening or obviously saying to themselves what in the world are they talking about <laughs> so by the way I, I, I made one mistake the messaging that we sent on the Christmas weekend with Jimmy's antenna was the messaging that contained the codes of Tonga Maria's took place on the 4th of February from Stonehenge, her first foray there, and the message, the tong itself actually exploded on January 15th. So I pardon everyone for leading them down a blind canyon. I'm I'm doing this all from memory, not, not from notes. And there's been so much going on. It's like those old TV programs where they said, follow the bouncing ball. The problem is that we have an entire, you know, uh, coterie of tennis players all bouncing balls all over the court simultaneously and following any one ball at any one time is just a bit difficult so before we get into anything i want to introduce maria Maria, are you with us yes hi. there Richard. you are okay this is our intrepid what should we call you we should think of a name because archaeologist is so kind of banal You know, she's kind of like a singular member of the Enterprise Away team that we send into Stonehenge now twice to, to do something and see if we can open hailing frequencies. And boy, have we ever. So what I'd like you to do is to walk us through everything that happened on the morning and afternoon of the 20th as you attempted to transmit for the second time from the center of Stonehenge.
3: Yes, well, on the 20th, like you said in the introduction, Richard, the the weather was very inclement and there was very high, strong winds. And also, in one of the uh, pictures that I sent in, I've shown how the Salisbury Plain looks. Stonehenge is on the edge of the Salisbury Plain, and it was on high alert. So red flags were flying everywhere, which means you can't turn at a particular angle if you see a red flag. Wait, 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 so was...
0: wait, wait, wait. When you say red flags, in other words, there are British military uh, MOD, you know, Ministry of Defense installations, all over the Salisbury Plain, and they've kind of crowded out Stonehenge, which sits kind of in a corner, and you if, if there's some kind of an alert or tests or operations from some of these military installations, they literally kind of guide you around, and sometimes you can't even get in. Is that correct?
3: That, that's correct. So if you imagine that surrounding Stonehenge, 360 degrees, there are military establishments north, south, east, west, everywhere. Uh, including our largest nuclear biological center on port and down so that's the, the stance around it but we must remember that the Salisbury Plain and Stonehenge itself is the largest spiritual and megalithic megalithic capital in the British Isles. On the Sorcery Plain alone, there's 2,000 monuments just on that area alone, 26 miles by 26 miles. So it's absolutely enormous, the, 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 uh, the archaeology and the unusual burials there, to say the least. So I managed to get into an area in between two military establishments – one's called Lark Hill and the other one's called Rolleston and I was uh, parked just up the, uh, the the lane on the edge of the Salisbury Plain by Rolleston and that's also close to a Neolithic site dating back about 6,000 years ago called Robin Hood's Ball and Robin Hood's Ball is a causedway enclosure which is a bit like a henge monument, that's a ditch and a bank but with gaps in it and that's 6,000 years old and the, the Red flag saying you can't turn right was flying right by that place. So I—that was my first uh, transmission, and I'm now about sort of a, a one and a half miles away from Stonehenge. That was the first uh, transmission, which uh, which I managed to uh, put out. Uh, but then the military police asked me to move on so uh, after the transmission i then had to drive closer to stonehenge and up a trackway which is literally parallel to the monument and the only trackway left that the general public can get near stonehenge and english heritage want to close that off Mm. so we're we're hoping very much that does not get closed off at all so i managed to get very close to stonehenge itself and uh, did another transmission from there as well. And all the time I was recording on another device uh, so that uh, we could have the, have the recordings. But when I got to, to Stonehenge, it was very strange because you used to see a lot of people at Stonehenge at, at the weekend, and it was, you know, nobody was there apart from a few security guards. And it had a, a kind of very peaceful, Uh, energy about it so Stonehenge felt quite different because normally it's a very powerful place that can literally take you somewhere give you a download it's it's a high high frequency place and it seemed to be quite calm on that day compared to to other days and I've been visiting visiting the monument for nearly 30 years so I know Stonehenge you know very very well
0: would you say this was maybe attributable to the lack of tourists
3: that, uh, yes, I think that could be one part of it, but Stonehenge itself, you know, acts as Stonehenge with or with, without people, and it seemed to be, sometimes it goes into like high frequency mode, then it can drop down a little bit, as, as most stone circles and, and monuments do, they have their own cycles within cycles.
0: So they're responding to the background changes in our model of the hyperdimensional physics
3: yes uh, i think that they do very much so
0: so when we bring thomas on i'm going to have him compare your uh, recordings from this this effort on the 20th to your early uh, transmission recordings on the fourth because your being more distant uh seem to really help in terms of being able to detect signals as opposed to a kind of an enormous rush of almost overwhelming energies and uh, when when Tom comes on I will I will have him uh, uh, describe that so it was it was windy very very windy you're in your car you don't even you're not even able to get outside the car right to do all this
3: no because the wind was i mean it was horrendous in fact nobody would go with me my friends said we're not <laughs> going out in that that wind maria the trees were coming down so i mean <laughs> to get there and back was really something. I mean, I asked uh, a couple of uh, guys I know and they said, we're staying in, you're crazy.
0: (laughs) Well, we kind of know that, but that's what makes you so lovable because you're crazy like a fox. I mean, boy, talk about intrepid. Um, Okay, so let me move over to David because um, what I find really interesting is we've got three separate analysts who are looking at this data through three separate lenses and they don't talk to each other before they get their results and then they talk to each other and compare notes and we post uh, as much as we can on on the site to fit within the you know time frame of the program and obviously this is why we're going to be doing this in two parts part one tonight and part two tomorrow night because we have a lot of detail to talk about but what's so interesting from your responses David, is that you told me earlier in the week, and when you had a chance to look, and I should also say we had other people with their radio, same model radio, wired into recorders or, you know, being recorded on smartphones, so that when Maria transmitted from Stonehenge, we would see if this ancient sacred site network all over the planet those places that we could cover uh, would respond with some kind of a resonance. In other words, whether we would get signals. And then we had some people like myself who I don't think I'm near a sacred site. I'm about 90 miles from Chaco Canyon, but there's a caveat because I'm only uh, maybe four, four or five miles from the Sandia Peaks. And up there, there appear to be some very ancient uh, geometric structures that actually look as if they had been made by some very ancient, now totally vanished civilization many, many, many years ago. And when we get to John's research, we're going to talk about uh, another area on the North American continent where something similar appears to have taken place. And so I I can't really say categorically that I'm not within the field of an ancient solid state amplifying technology i.e. a sacred site made of stone you know created by you know a long vanished culture and that's not helping me amplify and record what i'm getting on the uh, radio here but be that as it may we've got david uh who is in uh, eastern british columbia uh we've got me down here in the land of enchantment not far from um um the Sandias, uh, we've got, we're have got. we going to have them on the show tomorrow night. Dennis Stone was recording at America's Stonehenge. And then a, a new member of our team, uh, a, a longtime friend of Maria's, who goes by the handle Ra, and he will describe to us how we got that nickname. He was recording at the site of an ancient balanced rock in Upper New York State. And he got some very interesting results. Uh, Keith was recording, Keith Morgan, who was with us. uh, I forgot to introduce him at the top of the show because he's with us every show. He's our uh, uh, IT and computer expert and signals guy because he's worked with audio and radio for decades when he worked with ABC News and Ted Koppel. He recorded on his radio in Crofton, Maryland, which is many miles from downtown Washington, D.C., and the active, incredibly modern uh, hyperdimensional structure known as the Washington Monument. He recorded uh, during um, uh, Maria's explorations separately there outside of D.C. and has sent those to the analysts. So hopefully we'll be able to report on his results either tomorrow or probably next week because this is an ongoing, deepening exercise. And we're certainly hoping... Uh, among our listening audience if there are people out there with cryptographic backgrounds, with signal analysis backgrounds, with uh, people who write code who um, develop algorithms that can look through a whole bunch of transmissions and look for commonalities and patterns, we would appreciate your input absolutely um, starting you know, tomorrow morning because we need more people with more creative abilities to focus on some extraordinary responses and as um as uh uh, you know the what's his name glenn eastwood said in dirty harry a man has got to know his limitations well our limitations are funding and expertise and we need more of both so if you go to the other side of midnight and you want to donate something to this ongoing effort it would be very appreciated so let me now turn to david because, David, I want you to describe your mode of analysis and then some of the really, to me, hot-button things you got from your first cut looking at Maria's transmissions as she recorded them uh, right outside the monument blah, two Sundays ago.
2: So, Maria, we're, we're, what was your uh, transmission frequency, or did you use 432 and 1441 on this? on this thir- on the 20th of february uh
3: 432
2: okay so something incredible's happened on my radio ever since you transmitted my radio it's i've had this radio for 9 months and and 8 or 9 months and it has never stopped transmitting at 432 since you transmitted in fact i'll turn it on right now and you'll this is 432 And it's constant. And inside of that apparent squelch are numbers. And I'm going to kind of go backwards here because the the invasion of of Ukraine um, by Russia was February 24th. It's a miracle that you were transmitting four days before. And what happened on the 26th of February, I I sent this message out to you, Maria, Keith, and, and Richard. I keep getting this number on my frequency meter, 1697.62, which happens to be the square root of the square of two royal cubits, and, and, and again, two royal cubits is found in over 16 places in the Great Pyramid, and I thought, why do they keep pointing me to the Great Pyramid, to the Great Pyramid? What does the Great Pyramid have to do with Stonehenge? Now, my new data from your, from the analysis of your frequencies, Maria, there's one section of the recording where I've got my meter in front of, in front of the recording
0: and I keep seeing- So David, David, hang on, hang on. For people who are new to this, you gotta start from square one. How are you analyzing the signals? Be detailed. Okay, the way
2: I analyze the signals, you go to the other side of midnight.com and scroll down to David's items or you or can click
0: on David under fast links
2: okay so let me just show you an example and and I want you to go to item 2 and this is so shocking click on item 2 this is a new breakthrough in in our analysis method
0: and the the when oh, you click on item 2 oh my god
2: yeah it's mind blowing oh
0: so, my god david this
2: see the, why did I keep getting so? The number on the bottom left, 29.9799, it it, it was solid on Maria when I was playing her frequencies. It, I've never seen my meter do this. It stayed there for a solid 10 or 15 seconds, whereas normally the numbers are jumping around all over the place. So
0: they're flickering past, and you have this to this you, you, you have, you have 10, to you have to video record them and then play it frame by frame to catch these numbers.
2: Exactly what I'm doing. So I take my video camera on my iPad in front of my phone, which is running Frequency Meter Pro accurate to two decimals, and I'm putting my my frequency meter in front of my speakers playing back Maria's recording. Now, the fact that I got the Great Pyramid again and again and again, and I said, why is it that I keep getting the Great Pyramid? And I realized... No, wait, 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 wait. Great-
0: you, you, you made a leap. you got to connect with people that may not see the graph. Not everybody is on a computer or on a phone that can look okay, at Okay,
2: So what shows up on my meter are the numbers for the north latitude of the Great Pyramid. Now, I've seen these numbers before, and and they they are the same as the speed of light in metric in kilometers per second. All you have to do is move your decimal over because... The number you're seeing, the decimal is is not in the correct position. That's, but they're the same numbers. So it's noted that when you go onto Google Earth, you can do this right now, and you you switch your degrees, minutes, and seconds to digital ten base, and the location of the Great Pyramid of Egypt to a T is 29. 29.9799 is the north face of the Great Pyramid. Precise. Wait, 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 wait.
0: 29.9799 degrees north latitude.
2: Is, is the exact north latitude of the Great Pyramid. Notice that the Great Pyramids, I want you to see it in a completely different way. And this is the insight that came to me. Think of the eye of Ra and the eye of Horus. Think of the Great Pyramid Literally, the Great Seal of the United States on the back of the one dollar bill is <laughs> is the eye above the pyramid.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Now think of it as an electronic eye because it's pointing straight into Kiev, and 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 the entire conflict, like it's reading the whole thing.
0: Well, hang on, we we, we made a leap here because if you compare the decimal latitude of the Great Pyramid, twenty nine point nine seven nine nine degrees instead of reading you know seconds and minutes of arc yep, you, yep, you basically yep. take it as a as a decimal 29.9799 right. mm-hmm. then you look at david's inset photo on the google map right beside it and that number that hung out for several seconds 10 15 20 seconds 299799 Obviously, the frequency was telling you, screaming at you, the Great Pyramid.
2: Yeah, so now think of the way radar works. So if I want to take a radar reading of how far a jet is from my radar dish, because radar travels at the speed of light and it bounces back, it'll tell me how far away it is. Notice the image on the right meter reading from Maria's data, which follows... The reading on the left is the exact distance in kilometers between the Great Pyramid and the Zapfar Fariza nuclear power plant. <laughs> what? Yep. 1906. I did this on Google Earth. So I got right in there and I, I, I on Google Earth, I, I typed in the Zapfar Fariza nuclear power plant. And then I put my marker there and dragged myself back to the apex of the Great Pyramid of Egypt. And it is exact wow So, what that t- and of course this is before
0: this the is four end- days before putin has entered the country
2: but four days before he entered the country and again it's almost and weeks like-
0: before you know it's uh, what two weeks give or take before he actually had troops enter the grounds of of, of that nuclear plant a couple nights ago
2: yeah right so I'm seeing the Great Pyramid a whole other way now because I found another number, but I can't give this number out because I got another number in Maria's data, and if I add it to the location of the Great Pyramid, it takes me somewhere else in the battlefield, and I won't give this location out. And the fact that I got two, and I'm not even through all her numbers yet. Um, in wait, a minute, wait, era, hang
0: on, you lost me. Why won't why won't you give this number out?
2: Because it's too secure. It has to do with a very sensitive military operation. I'm not going to give it out. Okay. All I can tell you is, okay, let's go back to this. Now go to my item one. Okay. Click on item one. Now this is taking, these are numbers that if you look at the meter reading in the middle, you're going to see the Zafir nuclear power plant in the little red icon and, and you're going to see these are Latin longs in two different readings. 47.4665 and 34.4923 is the square root of the numbers you see on my meter readings coming out of Maria's Stonehenge response. So 225307, the square root is 4746. So those Latin longs. Put me where my white dot is, and what I'm, hype, I'm what I'm saying is that is probably the location prior to the attack of the nuclear power plant where Putin set up his troops
0: to uh, get ready to invade. Well, if I remember the video and where the tracer shells were coming from, they were coming from the southwest. Like from your location, right? right. So they they
2: would have moved to, from this. They would have had an encampment. Oh, guys, cause... we loop out a break.
0: Okay, okay, I'm 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 I'm. Okay, <laughs> gosh.
2: Okay, let's do the break, and then and then I'll continue when we get back. Because this excellent, is mind-boggling. Excellent.
0: This is absolutely mind-boggling. mind-boggling. You know, kind of like the only the only thing you can say so <laughs> as as we're as we're you know recurringly looking at these messages we're looking at two weeks warning on Tonga we'll talk about that in some detail in a few minutes and now we're looking at about two weeks warning on the Russian invasion of this major nuclear plant and a four-day warning on the invasion of of Ukraine. Who is talking to us out of time and trying to give us a heads up about events which are going to change the world? You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. Over and out.